Welcome to the Da Vinci Hour, a podcast series that interviews individuals across the field of medicine to help provide an inside look into their experiences and provide insight on how to navigate the journey of becoming a physician. My name is Dr. Maxwell Cooper, and I will be your host. This podcast is brought to you by Da Vinci Academy, a medical education company that provides online video courses, outline format books, and clinical case videos for students studying the medical basic sciences. You can check out all that DaVinci Academy has to offer at www.dbiacademy.com. All right, everybody, welcome back to the DaVinci Hour podcast. Um, here again with another great episode with uh, my guest, Dr. Emily Blum. Uh, Dr. Blum, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. Uh, just a little bit of bio on Dr. Blum. She's a, an attending pediatric uh, urologist in, at Georgia Urology in Atlanta, Um, She's also an adjunct assistant professor of urology at Emory University uh, here in Atlanta as well. And then she's also, in addition to her busy clinical schedule, is a medical innovations consultant, which we'll dive more into. And then she's also the medical director at the Global Center for Medical Innovation, and then the co-founder and chief chief operations officer at NeoCirc LLC. And then a little bit on her education, she uh, earned her bachelor's at Bowdoin College and then her MD at Boston University School of Medicine and then did her residency in urology at uh, Beaumont Health System in Royal Oak, and then did a number of fellowships afterwards, uh, one in surgical innovation um, called the Joseph E. Robert Jr. Fellow in Pediatric Surgical Innovation, and then the A. Barry uh, Bellman Fellow in Pediatric Urology at Children's National Health System in Washington. Um, so Dr. Blum, maybe could you tell us a little bit, just kind of start off your clinical position, uh, you know, what type of pathologies you see, obviously it's more so of a pediatric patholo- or patient population, but maybe with kind of subpopulations within that and then kind of the common procedures and how you split your time. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, as a pediatric urologist, especially there are only a handful of pediatric urologists in the state of Georgia. Uh, so we see most of everything that comes in within the state. There are, besides the eight in our practice, there are two others in Atlanta and then um, there's one in Augusta and that's it. Wow. So we see all the pathology, um, around the entire state. We even catch some of Florida and some of Alabama, uh, and some of South Carolina comes to us as well. Uh, because it's such a specific, uh, patient population. Um, and so we're d- dealing with all the congenital abnormalities that these kids are born with, duplicated kidneys, hydronephrosis, so a backup of urine into the kidneys. Um, vesicoureteral reflux is the thing that I think people know pediatric urology the most for, management of UTIs, uh, the thing that I try to specialize the most that I can in. Uh, we have to deal with whatever walks in the door, but I really like doing hypospadias repairs and uh, what I call the twigs and berry surgeries. Uh, and a lot of that desire to do the twigs and berry surgeries are, is because, um, a, that's what I really enjoy, uh, but B that's the one that I think, uh, allows you to have flexibility to do other activities outside of just clinical. Um, one of the things that is very common for pediatric urologists to manage are neurogenic bladders associated with spina bifida and myelomeningospheles. uh, And those are patients that are very demanding. They need a lot of your time and effort. Um, So I think that as people are choosing their careers, that it's really critically important to figure out that balance. Um, Everyone wants to be the hero in everything that they do, but you really have to be able to pick and choose and say, okay, 
if I want a career outside of medicine, in addition to medicine, yeah, there are some people that can be these amazing, you know, pediatric general surgeons, uh, Gretchen, uh, her last name is escaping me right now, but uh, she's a chief scientific officer, I bet it is, I, I think it is at IBM Watson, she just took that position. Oh, wow. She's a pediatric surgeon at Vanderbilt and she is this higher up in IBM and it's just like, wow, but even she, you know, she says she's had to taper down her practice and, and things like that. So you have to start picking and choosing. So for me, I try to keep my practice to as much as I can day surgery procedures that don't have a lot of acuity to them. I get to keep operating that way. I get to maintain that patient care and you get that great patient connection. Um, but on the same token, on my days that I am uh, over at uh, GCMI, the Global Center for Medical Innovations, um, I can focus on that job. Very cool. Very cool. So is your clinical practice, is it like a hybrid of private practice and academics? Because it seems like you're, you're part of a group, but then also you're an adjunct professor at uh, Emory University. Yeah. So it, we are a very unique practice. There aren't a ton like ours. And actually, our entire practice isn't like this. This is just for the pediatrics department. Uh, so Georgia Urology is the largest uh, urologic practice in the Southeast. Uh, we have both adult and pediatrics. Uh, the pediatric group is associated with Emory University. We have we train their fellows and we train their residents, um, but they don't cover our adult uh, faculty. So there aren't a ton of programs out there. It really is the best of both worlds because we don't have to answer to the hospital or the university system. Like everyone was like, during COVID, you know, did you get pulled into the ER or anything like that? And I was like, they don't own me. We're <laughs> private practice. Uh, and it's, it's getting rare and rare to find private practices around because a lot of them are getting gobbled up by the hospitals, but it's a really nice hybrid blend where I get to continue to teach and mentor. Um, but kind of had a little bit of the private practice lifestyle as well. That's, that's really cool. And so you mentioned you do some teaching. Do you do any kind of research as a part of that as well, or is it mainly uh, just in the innovation space? Uh, so it is, we do lots of research as much as we have time for. The downside of being private practice is that a private practice isn't going to pay you to do research. Uh, and so when you're doing research as part of private practice, it's on your own time. Um, they want you to see patients. They want you to make money. But because we do have the Emory affiliation, there is expectation that we do do publications and things like that. A lot of my research that I do uh, is in the innovation space, uh, which can be very time consuming. One of my projects that has kind of stalled a little bit because it's become a little too time consuming uh, is using AI for image analysis uh, without getting into too much nitty gritty. Uh, that was a passion of mine during fellowship. Uh, using uh, machine learning algorithms to analyze drainage curves for MAG3 scans. Uh, and I mean, I, I was shocked at how well accepted that paper was. And it's just constantly uh, cited because no one has really done anything like that uh, in that space. And we're looking to do that with BCUGs as well. Uh, my role over at, I, I have a nice little um, straddling different uh, universes because uh, at um, GCMI, I am uh, essentially, now I'm adjunct, uh, but staff of uh, Georgia Tech. Oh, wow. Okay. And so I, I both have Georgia Tech affiliation and Emory affiliation. So we have that really nice network within there, but it gives me access to amazing people. That's awesome. Awesome. Yeah. The kind of so many resources at your disposal by, by doing that. That's, that's really cool. Uh, I guess, 
kind of just wrapping up talking about your clinical, maybe take us through like your typical day. Like, you know, are you doing surgeries? Are you in clinic? Like, is it a split? Maybe kind of take us through that a little bit. So I'm either in surgery or I'm in clinic. I don't have a ton of days that I do half and half. Me personally, I find the half and half exhausting uh, because your ORs rarely finish on time. And if you're splitting it with clinic, then you're uh, running over to clinic. Your clinic rarely finishes on time. And so I'd rather just stick to one uh, specialty or one area of medicine at a time. Uh, but there are plenty of people that split their time. Uh, so I will see anywhere from 20 to 30 patients a day uh, in clinic and will, depending on what surgeries I'm doing, we'll do anywhere from typically three to 12 surgeries in a day. Wow. And when I'm at my, when I'm at the ASC, the ambulatory surgical center, those are usually really, really small cases. Those are usually lysis of penile bands, meatoplasties, circumcision, circumcision revisions. And so those are the days that I'll have nine to 12 cases on if everyone shows up. <laughs> Nice. Nice. Now, forgive me. My, my knowledge of pediatric urology is very limited. Is, is your patient population mostly males or is it, is it a split between males and females? I guess maybe educate yeah, me a little bit more <laughs> on that. It's mostly male patients, okay. uh, especially pediatric gynecology is a little more on the rise. And so in big cities like Atlanta, we just, we have some pediatric gynecologists, um, in smaller cities. Usually those are just pediatric urologists that are handling both. Okay. Um, the majority of the things that we're handling in the younger kids, it, when you talk about hypospadias, circumcision, circumvisions, uh, we do hernias, hydroceles, uh, undescended testicles. That's obviously all the male population. Although we will do some hernias in female patients, those tend to go to general surgery um, okay. because they'll, they obviously do those as well. And so there is a little bit of a turf war. Uh, pediatric urology is a relatively new specialty. Uh, and all of those surgeries used to be done by general surgery. Interesting. And so it, we've slowly taken back over over the last few decades uh, for, from the subspecialty standpoint, but we've lost some of the stuff too. Wilms tumors, so tumors in the kidneys, um, general surgery primarily does in most institutions because oncology refers the kids to them for a port uh, and they tend to take out the kidney at the same time. I'm getting off topic though. Your simple question was, yes, we tend to see more male <laughs> patients, but there are plenty of female patients that we take care of too. Urinary tract infections, very common um, urination issues like incontinence, bedwettings, things like that, also very common. Um, labial adhesions, uh, hydronephrosis, uh, we'll take care of all that. And we see that in both uh, men and women. Okay. Okay. Well, I guess maybe you've touched on this. What would you say are your kind of bread and butter procedures that you that you do? So bread and butter procedures for me um, tend to be uh, circumcisions, probably most common circumcision revisions, which is one of the things that with the NeoCirc uh, LLC uh, and that NeoCirc website, we're trying to work on uh, improving those outcomes, teaching people how to optimize their circumcisions, their neonatal circumcisions to decrease the amount of revisions that we have to do, because it really is an unnecessary surgery uh, and one that can be avoided. Uh, meatoplasties, uh, narrowing of the urinary meatus, which is uh, a complication uh, of circumcision uh, caused by irritation oh. of the tip of the penis on the diaper. Um, and we need to open up that pee hole. We say to the parents, if your kid has to point his penis down at the floor and the, his toes in order to hit the toilet, he probably needs that opened up a little bit. Gotcha. Uh, you can also get penile bands uh, that attach from the shaft skin to the head of the penis. 
different than penile adhesions. Adhesions you don't have to do anything for. Bands we need to cut and we can sometimes do those in the office, but more likely than not, we have to go to the OR, throw a few stitches in and take care of that. Gotcha. Okay. And then undescended testicles, uh, hernias, hydrocele's. Those are all our bread and butter, our twigs and berry cases. Gotcha. Gotcha. Which, is there any that are your, your favorite to do? And I, I guess if so, why? It's, it's silly uh, because it's probably the simplest procedure that we do. Um, but I love doing the ataplasties. Okay. okay. That opening up that pee hole because it's a very, very quick procedure. You put mm -hmm. a quick clamp on, you cut it. You still use your loops for it because you're still throwing these really fine 7-0 sutures. So you're using your fine motor skills that we've refined so much in pediatric urology. It's one of the things I love about our field mm -hmm. is it's one of the few fields out there that, you know, a 7-0 suture is our go-to suture. That's, That's our wild. primary suture that we make, that we use. So I do almost all my surgeries under 2.5 or 3.5 magnification. Wow. wow. Um, and these kids have immediate results and the families are so happy. And so it's a fun procedure to do minimal complications and uh, amazing outcomes. Awesome. That's really cool. Um, so you mentioned you're on call right now. What, when you're yes. on call, what, what type of emergencies are you typically getting called about or having to manage? Well, I hope you're not going to jinx me on this one. I, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> as a pediatric urologist, the most common by far thing that we manage from an emergency standpoint is testicular torsion. Oh, you only okay. have a few hours to get these kids to the OR uh, to make sure that the testicles detorsed before your, your rate of loss of these testicles uh, really drops off. Um, and so these are your teenage boys. They have an acute onset of testicular pain. Um usually with nausea, vomiting, the testicle will be higher riding in the scrotum. And so we have to take them emergently to the OR to untwist that twisted testicle. And then we tack it down into the scrotum. And then we tack the other side down because usually they both have what's called a bell clapper's deformity. Um, so the other one is going to be um, at risk for torsing uh, sometime in the future as well, if you don't, if you don't tack it down. Gotcha. So that's, one of the only things that will wake a pediatric urologist up in the middle of the night and get into the, get into the OR. Cause we have around, uh, we try to keep it between two and four hours from the time of presentation to getting to the OR, mm -hmm. um, for these kids. Uh, the other thing that will, that will, uh, take kids to the OR for obviously traumas. Sure. Um, usually not knock on wood. Uh, kidney traumas are nowadays usually managed conservatively, but penile traumas, scrotal traumas, my last call weekend, we took two scrotal traumas to the OR. Um, and, um, and infected kidney stones. Interesting. We're going to take a quick break to let you know the Da Vinci Hour podcast is brought to you by Da Vinci Academy, which provides online video courses for the medical basic sciences. These courses are taught using a variety of teaching methods, including bullet point outlines, diagrams, radiology images, and chalk talks to explain the fundamental concepts. We then teach the application of those concepts to numerous clinical pearls that are frequently tested on medical school exams and the USMLE. Our video courses are available on our website, dviacademy.com, as monthly subscriptions starting at $9.99 per month. Each video course has a corresponding outline format textbook as well. You can find the link to our website in the description below. Also, be sure to use the discount code TDH20 to receive 20% off any of our video courses. All right now, back to the podcast. 
I guess kind of winding back a little bit, because, you know, your field is so specialized. I guess I'm curious mm -hmm. how your decision-making through your training evolved to you going into that. I guess like in med school, what made you do urology? And then when you were in urology residency, what directed you towards peds uh, urology, or maybe you knew all along, that's what you wanted to do. No, I, I actually went to medical school with the intention of doing infectious diseases. Uh, oh. I've been loving COVID time a little bit because emerging infectious diseases was what I was planning on specializing in. And I set up, I had everything planned out. I'm, I'm a planner. Um, so I had everything set up. So all my third year rotations, all of my surgical rotations were first, so I could get a feel for what it was like to be a third year medical student. And then all of my, uh, my me medicine rotations were last. So I could be really good and I could blow those out of the water where it really mattered. And I remember being in my first C-section and it was a patient that I had seen in clinic, uh, on my OB rotation. And she came in the night that I was on call, um, with an infection. And so we had to take her for an urgent uh, C-section and we made that first incision and I said, crap, I'm a surgeon. <laughs> um, one thing that we didn't talk about earlier is, you know, uh, Blum I am is my consulting business, um, where I do private consulting for, uh, medical device startups, but the I stands for innovation. The M stands for mentorship. So I love mentoring people. I love people just reaching out, talking, and so one of the most important bits of advice that I give to anyone when uh, they're in medical school and they're trying to figure out their life is um, you have to figure out first and foremost, are you a surgeon or are you a medical doctor? There's a very distinct mindset. And then you have your radiologist, your pathologist. And if you don't fit into one of those categories, then you have to be like, wait, should I do radiology? Should I do pathology? Mm -hmm. Things like that. But there are distinctive personality types. Uh, and that was one of the things that really pushed me in the way of urology. Uh, I realized that I was a surgeon. I loved being in the OR. I loved operating. I loved that immediate gratification of doing what I was doing. And I loved tinkering and putting things back together. And so for me, it was urology was not about a love of the field, but uh, a love of the people in the field. You have to figure out your personality types and those that fit you and realize that for the next 40 years, these people are gonna be your colleagues. You're gonna be seeing them at meetings. You're gonna be spending time with them. Uh, so that to me was the click. I clicked with the urology residents. I clicked with the urology attendings. Um, I find that for urology, you have to have a pretty good sense of humor to do what we do. Sure, sure, of course. Um, you know, realistically speaking, with, with the exception of a few things, surgery, surgery, mm -hmm. uh, there are different types of surgeries that you do, but and some people love the pathology, but to me, surgery, surgery, you're, if you're operating, you're operating. And once those blue drapes go on, it doesn't really matter if you're operating on bowel or if you're operating on a penis, Yeah, uh, you're operating, but you, you want to like the people that you're working with. Sure. Sure. And then I guess, how did you evolve, uh, to going into the pediatrics uh, subspecialty? Like what made you do like kids versus adults? So twofold. Um, I had a lot of chronic illnesses as a kid and okay. there were a few physicians that really made a huge difference in my life. And I wanted the ability to give back to kids. Like my life was given back to me by those surgeons. And I make it a point to focus on my bedside manner and to really make every patient that walks into my door feel special, uh, which is sometimes really hard to do when you're seeing 30 patients in a day. Uh, and so that's a really careful balance. Um, and then the second part of it was I love the surgeries that we did. 
it, it's a matter of, I, I remember thinking to myself when I was a resident, you know, it was never acceptable in pediatric surgery to say, ah, that should be okay. <laughs> right. And it's amazing how many times you hear that. Oh, that, that'll probably be okay. Yeah. You know, yeah. when you're doing adult surgery uh, and I loved operating with the loops. I love that finite work, um, that finesse that you needed to be a mm-hmm. pediatric surgeon. And uh, there's something pretty cool to know that you're doing something that only a handful of people in the world can do. That's really cool. That's really cool. I and guess we have a lot of fun. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, I, rem- I, I remember doing yeah. a Wilms tumor case uh, at, at one point and the anesthesiologists were like, man, we wish gen- uh, urology did more Wilms cases because you guys laugh a lot more than the general surgeons do, especially during a case like this, you know? Yeah. I find most urologists are very, you know, they're serious about their work, but they're also very easygoing typically. And like you said, kind of the nature of your work, you almost have to have somewhat of a sense of humor. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. That's cool. But yeah, I guess, um, switching gears a little bit, maybe tell us about your, um, your innovate, your independent, like innovation, uh, your medical mm-hmm. innovation consultant, uh, position that you have? So I was always a tinker, uh, like I said. Uh, and I remember being in a case once and I said to my attending, wouldn't it be great if we had something that, you know, would just lift the liver out of the way for us and all that stuff. And he was like, can you just focus on the surgery, please? <laughs> uh, and so when I was looking at uh, fellowship programs, uh, one thing that really appealed to me about Children's National Medical Center was they had a for your research here, they had the ability for you to do a specialty in surgical innovations. I don't have a biomedical engineering background. I have no innovations background whatsoever. I have a business mindset and I've always liked business. Um, and I was always looking for better ways to do things. And so uh, I did that one year fellowship. And during that one year fellowship, I met the CEO or the former CEO of the Global Center for Medical Innovations. And look to her as a mentor to figure out how I could split my time and how I could continue doing innovation work uh, as well as practicing medicine. Cause I think it's really important to do both uh, because it's hard to tell someone what they need to do better if you don't know what they're doing in the first place. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so boots on the ground type mentality. Uh, and after around a year of her giving me advice and introducing me to people here and there and me just not finding the right fit, she said, why don't you just come down to Atlanta and work for me? It's like that sounds amazing. I would love to, and been waiting for you to offer that to me. (laughs) Um, And I got really lucky where Georgia Urology saw the opportunity uh, to expand what isn't a typical framework for uh, a private practice group uh, to really show their commitment to diversity and growing their practice in different ways. It's not just about seeing the patients, but it's about, um, thinking of new and different ways to enrich the physicians in their practice and their patient population and their reputation. And so they brought me down here and I now split my time three days a week with Georgia Urology and the two days a week with GCMI. And then in my spare time, I do the private consulting work and the neocirc.org work, uh, the neocirc.com work as well. Very cool. So are you, do you typically focus on like medical devices or is it kind of a a whole range of of different medical innovations? What's kind of your niche if you have one for that? 
So we are definitely medical devices. Uh, what we do at GCMI is uh, we have two different branches. We have what's called D2 and T3. Uh, D2 is design and development. So you come to us with an idea on a piece of paper or a somewhat built out uh, device already, and we help you build it out uh, even further and take it through the FDA approval process. So there's something called the design history file that you need to complete in order for submission for the FDA. We help you build out that design history file. Uh, but that first part of everything, which we call phase zero, is your product feasibility. Is this even a good idea? A design history file can cost millions of dollars to complete. Uh, a product feasibility is going to cost you a you know, 60, 70 grand total if it's a more complex project. And that's looking at your market analysis, your intellectual property, your regulatory analysis, your clinical needs. Most people have an idea and they don't do any deep dive into whether or not it's a good idea or if it's just their idea. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the product development and the prototyping. Uh, and then you have your T3 side and T3 is uh, transit transitional and translational research uh, and teaching and training. Uh, and so that's where you do the studies uh, to train people how to use your device. Uh, we have four ORs and we have a slew of different um, models that you can practice on uh, and get your preclinical uh, testing done for the FDA as well. Oh, wow. Very cool. Very cool. So are you, um, have you been involved like as a resident or a fellow or maybe even as an attending now in device development yourself, or is it seems like you're kind of splitting between working with a number of different teams? I, I'm splitting between working with a number of different teams. I've done slews of device development for other people. They okay. come to us with ideas. Um, I have not pursued any personal devices. I have plenty of ideas, but a long time ago, I realized I'm a much better coach than I am a player. Gotcha. Gotcha. And so I've kind of given up the ghost a little bit of trying to develop my own idea because for me it's a lot more fun to take someone else's idea and expand on it and say okay here you go now run with it very cool now are the the areas of innovation you interested are they mainly urology devices or are they kind of very broad across it, medicine it's whatever walks in our door and that's what makes it fun because i have to teach myself a lot of other fields of medicine uh what i don't think many people appreciate uh, especially if you're not interacting with other fields like engineers or lawyers or anything like that on a regular basis. Um, most graduate school training doesn't teach you that much about a, a decent amount, right? But mm -hmm. about the field that you're going into, it teaches you how to think for the field that you're going into. I don't remember much of what I learned in medical school. I learned most of what I do now in residency, but I learned how to think about the problems in medical school. I learned how to research the pro problems in medical school. People will tell you the same thing about law school. They'll tell you the same thing about getting an MBA, uh, about getting a master's degree in engineering. It's about the thought process and learning that thought process. Sure, sure. I guess, you know, and I'm even curious from my own personal standpoint, because, you know, in radiology and especially interventional, you know, there's a lot of, as you know, device development, and there's a few yeah. preliminary projects I'm involved in. What's I guess, what's your advice for a resident or like a medical student or, or an early attending getting involved in, in, in I, myself, like you, do, I do not have like an engineering background. I guess, what's your advice for, for early innovators? Early innovators would be, don't be afraid to ask questions. Okay. If you have an idea, ask someone, say, what do you think of this? You know, I, do you know of anything else out there? Do Google searches. Google is your best friend for an early innovator. Google patent is 
incredibly easy to search and you can find if anything else has been out there that's similar or not. Um, do your literature background. Again, is this a good idea or is this just your idea? Uh, is this just your problem? Uh, and once you've done those really basic steps, then you can make that go, no-go decision and then uh, talk to, if you're a university affiliate, talk to your tech transfer office. Most people don't even know what a tech transfer office is, but almost every university has someone that specializes in intellectual property, build and design and things like that. And they'll be able to point you in the right direction uh, to be able to build out your device or come reach out to me and I'll help point you in the right direction. Just because you're not working with GCMI doesn't mean that we're not going to help you. We're a nonprofit. And the goal is to improve patient care ultimately by getting better medical devices out in the field. Our part of our mission is to do that primarily for the Southeast, but everywhere, really. Um, we want Atlanta to be a medical device hub. So the more technology we can bring in, the better. So reach out, ask questions. Um, GCMIATL.com uh, is the website. Simple. Awesome. Yeah, we, we'll, we'll put that in the, uh, the show notes for sure. Uh, yeah. I, another question, I guess, when you get to the team building stage, because I imagine you have a lot of experience with that, is for, you know, especially at the resident or fellow level, you know, when approaching other people, you know, is there, you know, some people may be afraid to share their idea with other people that they may steal it or something like that. I guess, what's yeah. your kind of your thoughts on that? So if you're talking to people that you are, do have that concern from, uh, you can either have them sign an NDA, but an NDA is only as useful as you're willing to um, enforce it, or just use broad strokes. You know, when you're doing what's called voice of the customer feedback, you're not saying, this is my idea, what do you think of it? Mm -hmm. You're saying, do you have this problem? How do you address this problem? You know, what devices do you know that are out there? Um, you're, you're trying not to do leading questions. Sure. Uh, you're trying to keep it as open-ended as possible. Gotcha. Gotcha. So if there's a mentor or something that you trust and you can ask them those more specific questions, but keep it very broad. Gotcha. Okay. And then, you know, the one thing, and you kind of touched on this already, but I guess, how do you, you know, you're involved in so many different things, how, and I'm curious from my own education <laughs> and personal growth, how, how do you do that? Uh, you know, and be so successful in, in all of those things. <laughs> I don't sleep a lot. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you, you have to give stuff up, mm -hmm. right? You have to be willing to make sacrifices for the things that you're passionate about. Um, for me, that was a recognition early on that I don't want to take care of complex patients because I don't feel like I can do my best at both jobs, taking care of comp complex patients or too many complex patients mm -hmm. um, and doing the medical device development work. Um, I have my, uh, private consulting business and I have the medical director spot at GCMI. Uh, it's a recognition of sometimes I have to give up what is potentially going to be a nice paycheck for me from a private consulting standpoint, because that's really third in line of my priorities. I'm first a doctor, second, a medical director. And and those are my obligations. And the third is a consultant. Mm -hmm. um, and so sometimes I'll direct people directly to GCMI rather than doing work myself, because uh, you have to be realistic with yourself and your expectations and your time commitments, because you have to make time for yourself. Uh, right. You'll just end up get, being bitter at everything and burnt out mm -hmm. if you don't make time for yourself. And the purpose of trying to balance 
two or three different jobs is to avoid burnout, not to suffer from it. Gotcha. And that's actually a great segue into my last question here. What, when you're not doing all of these things, what do you do in your free time to get that balance? Um, well, I have a retired sled dog, uh, and a, another, uh, Husky hybrid, uh, that I like to take on hikes and spend time with them, uh, when I can, uh, my big passion, my two big passions, actually three right now, uh, are barbecue. Uh, so I spend a lot of time doing barbecue and I got a Wi-Fi barbecue so I can do my barbecuing at the same time. I do my, I do long distance endurance bike riding. Very cool. I ride for the. I ride for the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation team, uh, and that ride season just ended, so I get a little bit of my social life back. Nice. Uh, <laughs> and because some of those rides will take six, eight hours to, to complete wow. uh, on the weekends. We'll do 80 to 100 miles sometimes a day. Wow. Uh, with the goal of doing at least one century ride uh, a year, which is a 100-mile bike ride. And then uh, I'm a huge bourbon and whiskey collect, uh, bourbon and uh, tequila collector, too. Oh, cool. Cool. Nice. So that's what, that's what I prefer to do on the rainy days. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, Dr. Blum, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to, to talk with Absolutely. me here and, and uh, provide us a lot of insight into, you know, the pediatric urology and then medical innovation. Is there anywhere you'd want people to, to follow you or, or um, any platforms you're active on or where people can reach out to you on? Yeah. So I'm very active on LinkedIn. Um, uh-huh. And uh, you can more than welcome to put the link to my LinkedIn up there. Um, Blumim.com is my website. Okay. Uh, and then GCMI ATL, uh, you can reach out to us on there and just say that Dr. Blum sent you and you can always get in touch with me uh, from that standpoint as well. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you again for, uh, for joining us. We really appreciate you making time out of your very busy schedule. Absolutely. I'm, this was a delight and I, seriously, anyone listening, like I said, mentorship is one of the things that I think that people think they get a lot of, but not really, because not everyone's willing to tell it to you straight. Uh, I won't pull punches. So (laughs) feel free to reach out. uh, And I'll point you in the right direction of people that uh, I think would be good connections for you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DaVinci Hour brought to you by DaVinci Academy. More episodes are available on our website at dviacademy.com, our YouTube channel. They're also available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Also on our website, you can find our video courses for anatomy, biochemistry, and histology, and they're available as month-to-month packages. They're also available as a combo package where you can get all three courses in one. Our website also has a store where you can find our outline format textbooks anatomy, biochemistry, and histology. All textbooks are available in paperback version and as ebooks as well. These textbooks complement our video courses and provide a nice addition to the learning experience of allowing you to focus on the learning and not having to write anything down. On our website we also provide a free clinical cases video series called DaVinci Cases. DaVinci Cases aims to help you learn how to answer USMLE questions and apply concepts that you learn in our courses to answering those questions. Our cases cover a variety of topics and organ systems, and they're updated frequently with new cases. And then lastly on our website, you can find our blog, which has interesting articles that cover medical history, important figures in medicine, and innovations in medicine. Again, thank you for listening to this episode of the DaVinci Hour, brought to you by DaVinci Academy.
please be sure to tune in for our next episode. 